0: We are in the book of Joshua, we are getting to the end of Joshua now, there's 24 chapters and we're in chapter, well 23 and 24 really, we're going to be in chapter 23 and 24 this week and next week, finishing up the series. Uh, As you turn there, to Joshua 23 and 24, let me start this way, I'm going to read you the words, some words, from a famous final speech, and I want you to see if you can guess whose words they are, okay, you ready? Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop and I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And He's allowed me to go up to the mountain and I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, But I want you to know tonight that we, as a people, will get to the promised land. And I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Any guesses? Oh, you guys are good. Ah, I thought at least someone would say Moses. No, you're all too smart for that. Martin Luther King, 3rd of April, 1968, the day before he was assassinated. And uh, in view of his assassination, those words, when you read them again, they sound eerie, don't they? As he reflects on his own impending passing away and he's thinking about the legacy and he's thinking about the future of the civil rights movement and he picks up all of this rich Old Testament, biblical Moses imagery of being on the mountaintop as Moses was, looking over to the promised land as Moses did, but not necessarily being able to get to the promised land just like Moses It's interesting, he uses that whole metaphor as a way of reflecting on his experience with the civil rights movement. We're going to look this morning at another farewell speech, given by someone much closer to Moses than Martin Luther King, Joshua. Uh, Joshua was the leader of Israel, and right at the end of the book, the last two chapters of Joshua are taken up with Joshua's farewell speech. In fact, there are two speeches, back to back. Chapter 23 is one. Chapter 24 is another. But they're so similar and so much of the material overlaps between the two speeches that we'll treat them really just as one whole unit. And what Joshua is doing here at the end of his life, and unlike Martin Luther King, Joshua knows that he's about to die. He knows that he is very old and about to pass away. And so he assembles all of Israel together, especially the leaders and the representatives of the various tribes of Israel, and he gives them these great parting words. And, and and these chapters, you've never seen Joshua more fiery than he is in these chapters. I mean, you you could sort of assume that he might be a candidate just to drift into retirement. He's done the hard yards. He's fought the campaign. He's led Israel seven years of, of gruesome conflict. And now he's just is ready to roll over and leave it to someone else. But here he is. He's fired up. And you can read these words. We won't read all of 23 and 24 today. But if you read them in your own time, you'll see this as a man with passion. This is a man with zeal and tremendous enthusiasm and such a heart, like a fatherly heart, for, for the next generation of Israelites that are emerging, that they would remain faithful to God, that they wouldn't neglect him, they wouldn't turn away to other gods, but that they would remain faithful to the covenant, they'd keep going when they settle in their own land, that they would stay the course and they'd keep the path. And it's interesting as he gives this speech, his, so much of his strategy, so much of his approach is not to bang them over the head with rules and regulations and tell them, you've got to do this, you've got to do this. What he does is he goes back and he tells them the story. So much of these chapters is Joshua going back and retelling the story, retelling the story of Israel, retelling God's story of what he has done for them. And so look in verse 23, verse 14. This, I think is a summation of the whole book of Joshua, verse 14. If I was going to preach this book again, I think I'd start here rather than chapter 1. Chapter 23, verse 14. Joshua says, Now I am about to go the way of all the earth. You know with all your heart and soul that not one of all the good promises the Lord your God gave you has failed. Every promise has been fulfilled. Not one has failed. You see what Joshua is doing is he's giving the Israelites a way of understanding the story. And he's saying to them, this story is not about us. The plot line of the book of Joshua is not Israel conquers the land and drives out the Canaanites. The plot line is God fulfills his promise to Israel by giving them the land. Do you see the difference? One is an egocentric way of looking at this book. It's people doing things maybe for God. The other is a theocentric way. Of looking at it. God is the main character. God is the protagonist of the story of Joshua. He is the one who is orchestrating events, and the story of Joshua is the story of God making good on the promise he made to Abraham five hundred years ago to give Abraham's offspring a piece of land on the edge of the Mediterranean. It's as simple as that. Joshua is the fulfillment, it's a book of fulfillment. Promises finally coming to fruition. And Joshua says you've got to understand the story is not about you. And the story, he says, is not about me either. This story is about God. It's an interesting lesson, isn't it, on Christian leadership in view of the events of this week. Joshua, as a Christian leader, saying, this actually, this story is not about me. This is about God. Joshua's saying, what I want to do is connect you to God's story more than anything else. Not my story. He's perfectly happy to get out of the way. But what his desire is, is that this group of Israelites, this community of faithful people would continue to be faithful to a story that's much bigger than them and would continue long after Joshua is dead and buried. And so in chapter 24, he goes back and in verse 2, he starts telling the story. He goes right back to Abraham, right back to Genesis 12, when God first made this promise to the wandering Aramean, Abraham. And Joshua tells the story. In 12 verses, he tells about 500 years of Jewish history from Abraham through the patriarch era, through the Egyptian slavery and the wandering in Sinai and then the conquest era. If you want a nice little succinct Reader's Digest version of the first six books of the Bible, Joshua 24 will give it to you. This is the story. And he goes back and he gives them the summary of their story and brings them right up to the present time. Why does he do this? Why is Joshua so fixated with the story? Why doesn't he focus more on what's coming next? Why doesn't he focus more on the future? What's the story all about? It has a very practical outworking. An incredibly practical reason that Joshua has for telling the story and it's found in verse 14 of chapter 24. As soon as he has told the story, he gets to the end of it and he says this, "Now, in other words, Present tense, now, told you the story, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. See, Joshua knows that this story, this story of God, the story of Yahweh and his work with Israel, it's not the only story swirling around the air. It's not the only story that is competing for people's minds and hearts. There are other stories. It is a contested story. And he knows that within Canaan, in particular, there are other groups of people that follow other stories relating to other gods. The gods of Baal, the gods of Asherah, they all have their own worldview story. And you can look, archaeologists have found fragments of the Baal story, the Baal myth, it's got its own creation story. It's got its own story of what the gods are doing on earth now. It's got its own way of helping people think about life in the present. It's got its own way of pointing to the future so that we can take the next step in our life. It's, it, it, it is a worldview story, the story of the Baals. It's a story that encourages the worship, ultimately, of nature and seasons And the Asherahs had their own story. It's a story ultimately that encourages the worship of sex and prostitution. But there were all of these stories swirling around. And Joshua knew that the story we tell ourselves shapes the way that we live. That every person and every community ultimately adopts a story. It's the same today. Even if we 're not living out the story of god 's faithfulness, we are living out some story. We are living out some narrative we 're involved in some worldview, some narrative that is shaping our life in the present. I was listening the other day to um, I think it was that program good morning that 's a TV one program hey Good morning. And this was while I was on leave, by the way. I don't watch that every morning. You'll be pleased to know. I do some work occasionally. But I was watching this and they had a panel of guys on and they were talking about religion. And one of them went on a massive rant about how religion is is just this controlling force in your life. And he made a comment which I thought was insightful. He said, I just can't imagine being religious because I can't imagine a belief system having that much control on your life. It was interesting to hear him say that, because it shows you the way that he, and I think this would be true of many people, the way that he thought about what religion was. He sees religion, like Christianity, as a, as a worldview, as a story, that if you buy into it, it makes these demands on your life, and it controls you, and it governs you, and it influences you. But if you don't, then somehow you're outside of any story and somehow you're free and you're not controlled by any story over here. And I I felt like screaming through the television, you've got your own story. You're living out a story right now. In fact, I would say in the broader sense of the word, he's just as religious as the other person. His religion is secular humanism and he's an ardent worshipper. He's an ardent member of this religion of secular Darwinian humanism. And he's faithfully living that out, as faithful as the most faithful Christian is living out their story. Every one of us has a story. We are all shaped by a way of thinking. We are all shaped by a set of beliefs. You might not even be able to articulate what they are. And you might sit here as he did and say, I don't have a story. I don't have a worldview. I just, I'm a free thinker. That's your story. And I guarantee you that as you peel back the layers and start challenging your beliefs and assumptions, there is a narrative that's controlling your life. We talked a few weeks ago about the Middle New Zealand narrative that countless Kiwis are living out. The narrative, we good education, secure job with room for promotion, healthy family, retirement prospects and lifestyle options at the end of life. It's a simple narrative. It covers all of life. It gives you the sense of where you've come from, where you're going and how to live in the present. There's a narrative of just secular humanism that we are the highest beings in the universe. What we can see and touch and feel and taste is all there is, and therefore we determine our own reality, our own truth, and our own value in life. And it leads to existentialism, just living in the moment, just living in the present with no real concern for what's coming. It leads to hedonism, where personal pleasure is the highest good. All that matters is my pleasure and my happiness. A lot of people living that way, not because it's a vacuum, but because they are absorbed into a narrative. You could be living out the story of victimization. Someone's done something to you, someone's wounded you, someone's hurt you, and now that is the defining thing in your life. Now that's what defi- that's your identity, this wound you've incurred, and you carry it with you, and that's who you are. And it's everything that comes out, and it, it, it affects your relationships, it affects the way you think about life, it affects that sense of hopelessness you have because of something that's happened to you back here, the, the narrative of victimization. We can be living out the narrative of consumerism, that the pursuit of wealth and the accumulation of assets is going to lead to happiness and satisfaction and pleasure. It's a myth, it's a narrative, it's a story, but people are living it out. Do you see? Every one of us are living a story. And just as Joshua knew that there were a whole bunch of stories swirling around that these Israelites could have to be absorbed into, the story of the Baals and the Asherahs, so today there are competing Narratives. And the Christian story, story of God and His work in the world, this story is contested. And there are plenty of other narratives that are fighting for hearts and minds. And so Joshua is burdened to press on the Israelites this story. And to help them see that this story is the story. It is reality. It is truth. And it cuts through all other stories and gives the most coherent and the most rich explanation of why things are and provides that framework for living. This is why, friends, we've got to know this story. Not just because it's a nice record of what God's done and doing and will do, but because the story shapes us. And if we're not being shaped by this story, we're being shaped by another story. We've got to know the story. We've got to know the big story. And here's what Joshua does when he gets to the end of the story. This is absolutely genius in chapter 24. Have a look at verse 25. He's told the story. He's he's pressed it on their hearts. And now he says, this is what he does in verse 25. On that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people. And there at Shechem... He reaffirmed for them decrees and laws. And Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. Then he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak near the holy place of the Lord. There is a lot more going on here than you think. And this is brilliant. This is worth every penny. Uh, Turn back for just a second to Genesis chapter 12. Keep your finger in Joshua 24. Genesis chapter 12. This is the story of Abraham, the original story when God made this promise to Abraham. It's now being fulfilled in Joshua's day. In verse 6 of Genesis 12, Abraham traveled through the land. This is the land of Canaan. God says to Abraham, I want you to travel through this land. I'm going to give to your offspring. He didn't own the land. He had no possession of the land. He's just wandering around in it. Abraham traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moriah. At Shechem. you notice any connection? See, Joshua and the Israelites are just going through this huge covenant renewal ceremony at a place called Shechem. It's in the middle of Canaan. And here, way back 500 years earlier, God appears to Abraham in Canaan at Shechem. And it gets better than that because there's this tree, this tree of Moreh, right there in Shechem. And God appears to Abraham at the tree of Moreh. The Lord appeared to Abraham, verse 7, and said, To your offspring I will give this land. There's the promise right there in its simplest form. So he, Abraham, built an altar there to the Lord. A pile of stones commemorated God meeting with him. Isn't this incredible? Abraham's in Shechem. He's under, an, he's under a tree. You don't know what kind of tree it was. Great tree of Moriah. God meets with him, makes a promise, and Abraham builds a memorial. Now, it gets better. It gets even better than that. I'm so excited about this. Um, Genesis 35. Turn over there for just a second. This is the story of Jacob, Abraham's grandson. Abraham's grandson. 35, verse 2. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Get rid of the foreign gods you have with you and purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come. Let us go up to Bethel where I will build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I go. You're not going to believe this next verse. Listen to this. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had and the rings in their ears and Jacob buried them under the oak tree at Shechem. Shechem again and another tree. And it's an oak tree. This is unbelievable. I know you're as excited about this as I am. But here is Abraham at Shechem, building a memorial to commemorate God's promise to him to give his offspring the land. Then Abraham's grandson Jacob goes to Shechem, where he gets all of his family to get rid of all their foreign gods, exactly the same thing Joshua was telling the Israelites to do. And he builds, in verse 14, you can go down and see, he builds a memorial under an oak tree at Shechem to commemorate this place where God met with him and where they buried their idols and renewed their faithfulness to God. And then you get back to Joshua 24, and here is Joshua now. At the end of the conquest, the promise to Abraham has been fulfilled. It's time for all these other gods to be utterly rejected. And where better to do this than at Shechem, under an oak tree? (laughs) Don't know if it's exactly the same oak tree. Can't say for certain, but just imagine if it was. The same oak tree, the great tree of Moriah, Here's Joshua now leading Israel in this covenant renewal ceremony, celebrating the promise fulfilled, getting rid of the foreign gods and connecting them to this incredible story that's gone before them. Imagine standing there in that place and just reflecting on 500 years of Jewish history now fulfilled. Incredible promise to Abraham, finally we've got the land. See, there's far more going on here than just Telling the story. What Joshua has done is found a way, a physical, tangible, real way of connecting the Israelites to the story. At a place. And he builds a memorial. Maybe he added on to the memorial that Abraham had previously built. Maybe it was still right there and Joshua adds some more stones on. He's using space. He's using symbols. He's using things that the Israelites can see and touch and smell and feel to evoke a story. It's not just about telling each other the story. It's about doing things. It's about being creative and being imaginative and connecting each other to the story in fresh ways. You see, when we meet here together on Sundays, this is a covenant renewal ceremony. We are doing what Joshua and the Israelites did in Joshua 24. We just stand a little bit further downstream in the story. We stand on the other side of Easter, on the other side of the cross and the empty tomb, and we see how Joshua was one chapter in the story, and it's carried on. The great climax of the story was Jesus' death and resurrection, but it's the same story, and here we are, and now we don't need to go to Shechem and gather under an oak tree, we gather around the cross. And the cross for us is the supreme symbol that evokes a story. Symbols do this. They're loaded with meaning. And we gather around, not a tree, well, a type of tree. We We gather around the cross. And the story comes alive among us. That's why these times are important because we're soaking ourselves again in the story. As we worship One way of understanding worship is that we are retelling the story. And we're saturating ourselves again in our shared story. Not just to remember good times, not just to talk about God, but because it shapes us. It has a shaping effect on our lives as we embody the story, as we rehearse the story. When we take communion in a couple of minutes, as we're going to do, this is an unbelievable way of keeping the story alive. These emblems, multi-sensory. We see them, we touch them You can taste them. can't smell much, but you can taste them. And they are ways of evoking a story. We're using physical things loaded with meaning to tell a bigger story. Can you think of ways that you could do this within your own family, within your own life, that you can take what Joshua is doing, a memorial under an oak tree at Shechem, and make it real in your home? It's not just sitting down and saying, Let's tell the story. There'll be times for that, but it's being imaginative. It's finding ways as families. Is there a particular space you can go individually or as a family that evokes the story for you? Is there a place that reminds you of God's faithfulness? Is there some wide open space? Is there a particular spot? Is there something that triggers for you? the closeness and the faithfulness and the nearness of God. You go to that place and you can connect yourself again to the story. Soak yourself again in the story and visit that place regularly. If you have family devotions around the dinner table or you have family prayers just before bed, those are covenant renewal ceremonies. You are doing in those times what Joshua did In Joshua 24, you're using physical things. You're helping to tell the story and keep it alive in your family. These things are loaded with meaning and they're ways of bringing the story alive. Even even saying grace before meals. We just drift into the same. We say grace the same. Those of you who say grace, you say it the same every night. You know, I say it the same every night. It's the same words. It's the same language every time we eat. It's the blah, 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 thank you God for this day and this meal and bless it to our bodies and da, 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 da. And all good stuff. But by the time you've rolled that off your tongue 500 times, it's totally lost its meaning. That prayer can be a covenant, renewal, ceremony. That prayer can take something verbal and use it to bring the story alive. Why not this week make it a different grace every night? Just try it for one week. Just prevent yourself and forbid yourself from just using the same language every night. Try It's quite hard because you won't know what to say. It's like trying to begin a sermon with something other than so. It's difficult. <laughs> but give it a shot and just say as we pray for this meal, use something else. Pray for somebody. Pray for something. Ask, thank God for something that you might not usually thank Him for and, and, and force yourself to use different words. Because it does something and it makes you think about what you're, what you're saying. And it, then it brings the story back alive. Even within your families, you could have a memorial, maybe a place in your home, a sacred place. We're not replacing the cross, we're not going back to animal sacrifices, but just a space, a focal space where family can come and pray. Maybe you put objects there that are significant to you, something that reminds you of a time when God was faithful to you and your family in the midst of a really difficult time, just some object. And it evokes a story, and it takes your mind back. And you've got something there, and the family gathers there, and it's just a way of keeping the story alive. We're coming up to Christmas. What can you do as an individual? What can you do in your home? What can you do in your family that keeps the story alive? Because we're going to be drowning in the myth of consumerism through December. That narrative is going to take massive hold. So how can we swim upstream and within our families and within our own lives, find ways? Maybe it's, the, maybe it's a simple Advent calendar. They can be cheesy and they can be whatever, but if you use them well and every day you're opening a window and talking about significance, talking about the story, maybe it's just Reading the Christmas story together as a family. Maybe it's acting out the Christmas story as a family if you're the dramatic types. But find ways to keep the story alive. Be imaginative. Joshua was. Be creative. Find ways. How can we connect ourselves to this incredible drama of God's that is going on all around us? How can we use our senses to do this? Let me read you a couple of final verses. Not from the book of Joshua, but from the following book. This is really how the story of Joshua ends. There's an epilogue in the book of Judges. Joshua 23 and 24 end on this really triumphant note. Great covenant renewal ceremony. Everybody's fired up. Everybody's rearing to go. And look what happens in Judges chapter 2. Verse 10. After that whole generation, that's Joshua's generation, had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor the Lord, nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they served the Baals. It's just tragic. Within the space of one generation, an entire generation of Israelites drifts away. And why? Because they grew up not knowing the story. They became disconnected from the story. They did not know what the Lord had done. And what's the consequence of that? They follow another story, because everyone's going to follow a story. And if we're not connected into the narrative of God and what he is doing and will do in the world, we'll drift in. We'll be absorbed into the narratives of this world that clamor for our hearts and minds. In the space of one generation, we can lose our children to other stories. This is why those of you that are parents especially, we need to take responsibility for passing the story on. It's not the responsibility of kids ministry. They've got your children for an hour on Sundays, but you can't leave it to them. Compared to the time that you have with your children, that's that's minuscule. We'll do what we can, we'll nurture, we'll nourish, but parents we need to step up and take responsibility for passing the story on, giving the story, one generation speaking the mighty works of God to another. We've got to be intentional about it. You can't drift. You can't just, oh well, whatever happens, happens. Find ways. Think about it now. Get those traditions in your family. Get those ways of having covenant renewal ceremonies bedded down now in your family so that you soak your children in this story. Of course they've got to make their own decision one day. Of course you can't choose for them. But we can help shape them in this story to make it as easy as possible for them to choose rightly when they come of age and are able to do that. It's our responsibility. And as we do these things, we keep the story Alive, And we tell it, and we live it, and we pass it on. Let me finish this morning with the words of Ivan Illich, former Austrian priest. He says this, Neither revolution nor reformation can ultimately change a society. Rather, you must tell a new, powerful tale, one so pervasive that it sweeps away the old myths and becomes the preferred story one so inclusive that it gathers all the bits of our past and present into a coherent whole, one that even shines some light into the future so that we can take the next step. If you want to change a society, then you have to tell an alternative story. And we have that story, friends. We have it. And it centers around the death and resurrection of Jesus. We need to know it. We need to tell it. We need to find ways of connecting ourselves to it in creative and imaginative ways. And we need to take responsibility for passing it on to the next generation. God, give us the strength to do that, we pray. Help these not just to be words, but help us to have the courage to put this into practice. Bring the ideas to our minds that we need. Give us creativity, Lord. Give us imagination just as Joshua had to keep this story burning in our hearts, burning in our homes, burning among our children, Father, we want to live this story out. We want this story to so sink into our bones that it just shapes us and it just spills over into our lives. God, we know that you have not called us just to do better and try harder and behave ourselves. You've called us to soak ourselves in the wonderful story, the wonderful story of your rescue plan for planet Earth that rises to its incredible crescendo in the dying and rising of Christ. So bring that story back to our minds and give us the strength to live in that story from this day on, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.